I'm always of the mindset of trying to not repeat and do the same thing that I've done before. You obviously don't want to hard pivot left turn or something like that and throw people off completely. But I do feel like it's important to keep pushing yourself creatively and let the fans grow with you as an artist or creative. Welcome to Augzoro, a media platform built to make you think better, ignite conversations, and inspire you to do dope shit. I'm Zach, host of the Augzoro podcast, and I look forward to bringing you along on this journey today. Here are a few things you should know before we start the conversation. Number one, this podcast is a place for me to explore my curiosity and share what I've learned with others. Everyone I speak to on this podcast, whether they're a doctor, designer, music artist, or neuroscientist, is someone who does or makes dope shit. I will never speak to anyone on this podcast who does not truly excite me, whether they have 500 followers or 5 million. Number two, sometimes I get things wrong. There will be times when I listen back to this podcast and think, what a fucking idiot, or how could you say that? And that's okay. You are free to agree with what I say, disagree with what I say, or anything in between. By choosing to record my journey, I accept whatever reactions may come with it. All I ask is that if you hear something on this podcast you don't like or makes you uncomfortable, get fascinated before you get defensive. And number three, the best thing you can do to help this podcast grow is to share it with three other people and tag us on social media. If you feel inspired, pick out a quote to share on Instagram, write a blog post about the podcast on Medium, or record a video about the podcast on TikTok. Make sure you tag AdOgZoro on all platforms so that we can respond to you. The best way to spread love is to share what you love. So if this podcast has moved you in any way, we appreciate you spreading the word about Augzoro. This time, I sit down with Griffin, hailing from California, who is one of the most talented and well-known producers in electronic music today. You might know him for jams like Nobody Compares to You, Feel Good with Elenium and Dea, all You Need to Know with Slander, Tie Me Down with Ellie Due, and Whole Heart with Bipolar Sunshine. Currently streaming at over 10 million listeners per month on Spotify and climbing, Griffin has also done official remixes for Snake Hips, Tuv Low, Years and Years, Maroon 5, and Kygo. I've been listening to Griffin since my early college days, and it was an honor to sit down with one of the most talented electronic producers making music. Griffin's latest releases include a song called Safe With Me with Audrey Mika, which is a bonafide jam, and the Gravity Deluxe album, which includes four brand new orchestral versions of songs and two new VIP remixes. I have the Body Back VIP remix on repeat. In this episode, Griffin discusses how an Ellie Goulding remix became a turning point in his career, the spiritual aspect of music, being creative in quarantine, the connection between imagery and sound, and more. Without further ado, please enjoy this deep dive with Griffin. I think uh, a good place to start I heard you mention in a few past interviews that one of your cousins is actually in a band called Thrice that originated in Orange County. Yes, and that is so, true. So something, something that I'd be interested in knowing is what was that experience like going to shows when you were younger? Because that must have been had some sort of impact knowing the career that you've chosen now as a a music producer and a performer, seeing your cousin perform in a band from that young age. Good looks on that one, finding that one out. Um, Yeah, I I was really influenced by Dustin. Growing up, we used to always meet a couple times a year just for like family gatherings and stuff like that. But whenever he was touring in the Bay Area, I saw every single Thrice show that I could in the Bay. 
my dad would take me when I was younger. And then I would take, I would just go with some of my friends when I got a little bit older in high school and stuff. But yeah, it's obviously different kind of music, but the fact Mm -hmm. that he was such a incredible performer and the band was so getting so big when I was younger, it was, it did really, um, it was really inspiring to see him do that and was really, uh, I don't know if it motivated me to do music, but it definitely like made me love it even more. And I definitely picked up the guitar during that whole era when I was, when I was really into his music and watching him come up in the scene for sure. Was there a moment that stands out to you when you're looking back on those performances, watching your cousin play where maybe, you know, it's hard to tell what you want to do for a career at that age. I don't think anyone does, even if, you know, they tell you, oh, I knew when I was 10. Is there a moment where you sparked something inside you sparked that passion where you saw your cousin on stage and you thought, all right, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I want to be involved in music in some way. Well, music, so music for me, I mean, that, yes, that definitely inspired me watching him do that and do that successfully. I mean, I even remember the times when he put out um, Identity Crisis, which is like their first real album that was released with like an imprint. And the family was like kind of skeptical of it back then. And then as they continue to release more music and become more successful, it was like, oh, he actually is making a career for himself and is supporting himself financially. And, oh, this is actually pretty cool now. Like I saw that progression within my family, which was really cool to see them kind of accept, learn to come around to accept him for the talent that he had for music and to not choose like a typical path, I guess, as a career choice. Music for me was a little bit different. I mean, I, I studied electrical engineering in college though. So even after seeing Dustin and all of his success with Thrice, I still kind of was like on this trajectory, not in music. Was yeah. My dad was an engineer. So I figured like, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I was like, I guess I'll be an engineer too. And it wasn't until I was in school that I kind of realized I didn't like engineering and kind of hated it and wasn't very good at it that I got into dance music around that time period and started, I downloaded Ableton and basically was off the side, like producing music as my escape from mm-hmm. not wanting to be an engineer. And that was like the beginnings of like the Griffin world really. And like mm-hmm. making, making that kind of music. How do you think about that time when you were still deep in the engineering program where maybe you thought that this was going to be your future, but then you also saw an outlet in music because I went through a, a different sort of situation where I was studying accounting and now mm. I do podcasts and podcast producing, which I, I taught myself how to do that, the basics of it in a few months on YouTube. So now I look back and I'm like, damn, yeah. like I spent four four years studying accounting, which is helpful in business in a lot of ways. How do you look back on engineering during that time? Is there anything that you still draw from or that you're grateful that you had that experience for? That's awesome. Congrats on that career change and pivot. That's feel like we can relate a lot to that. Unexpected, but super grateful. Yeah. Well, in terms of that question, I would say nothing directly has helped me with music. Like I don't apply any of the principles I learned from electrical engineering into like music theory or (laughs) anything like that. But the it did teach me to work really hard. Like, I don't think I actually had the greatest work ethic, maybe in like high school, like it's in, in middle school, like just going through that sort of, I don't know, just like playing sports and getting good grades in high school. Like, I mean, I guess I put in a put in work, but it wasn't like, I never felt like that challenged by it. And then I got to engineering school and I realized very quickly that I was not the smartest guy in the room. It was pretty humbling being like, whoa, I actually have to study a lot and work really hard if I'm going to try and get like passing grades in this class and try and get a job. So that and it made me like a lot of my friends were business majors and in the arts. And it's not to say those degrees are easy, but Mm -hmm. I didn't I hadn't have as much time as they had because I always had to go to like four hour labs and all this other stuff for the engineering degrees. And 
I had to learn yeah. how to prioritize and say no being like, Hey, like, sorry, I can't, I can't play beer pong with you guys this afternoon. Like I got a lab I need to go to, or I got to study. And that sort of like work ethic yeah. and thought process, I think from engineering did teach me that if I was going to get good at making music and producing music that I had to put in work and work hard to yeah. get to where I needed to be. Yeah. It's funny that the way that you talk about engineering reminds me of how one of my best friends from college, a, a teammate in baseball and also a roommate, you remind me of how he spoke about his pre-med degree because he had all this extra time, like labs and, and things like that. And, and we didn't have an engineering degree at Richmond, but I guess that would be like the closest equivalent in terms of having, you know, four or five extra hours a week that you need to go to that aren't part of any other majors. And I always used to joke with him saying that, you know, if you skimp on your work, you're going to kill someone. If I skimp on my work, the worst thing that happens is like white collar crime or something like that. So yeah, I guess like with engineering, not putting together a, a building properly or, or, or something like that, or not studying for pre-med, I, that was just something that you made me think of. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and again, like I don't definitely don't apply anything I learned from college into music making, but it definitely taught me to taught me to work hard and putting in work usually gets you results. It was like that sort of fundamental understanding, like really got ingrained. Yeah. So you've also talked a bit about uh, Dead Mouse and, and Skrillex being inspirational back in the day when you started making music. And, and you talked a little bit about the the imagery in your head and you'd say that those artists almost painted these images in your head. And with quarantine and more free time, I've been walking around listening to music, like actually noticing visuals that will pop up with certain songs when I'm giving my time, when I'm giving myself the time to walk around and do nothing. For you, I was curious how visuals and imagery play a part in your own music making and, and, if you're thinking about that while you're creating or if you see something and, you know, you want to make a, a sonic interpretation of something visual, how, how does that come into play with you? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I draw, I do get a lot of like illustration and, and like imagery when I listen to other people's music. When I'm actually creating myself, I'm not necessarily seeing, I guess, the visuals when I'm making it, but I always try and feel... I just always try and see if the music that I'm making is taking me to like a different place. Like, do I almost have like an out of body, like type feeling to it and association where I feel like it's elevating me and taking me mentally somewhere. And if it does that, then I feel like it's, it's got like an emotional, like cinematic type quality to it. Cause I always try and achieve that with the music is to, yeah, take the listener on like a journey and teleport them to like some higher place, I guess. Because I feel like some of my favorite artists do that for me. And I, I, that's, that's sort of what I try and try and achieve in my own music. I definitely, I get that vibe when I listen to your music. And I also see the way that you lose yourself with live performances. Because I, I tuned into the Digital Mirage set. Oh, nice. I saw the one that you did on the rooftop in LA. Mm -hmm. And you're having a really great time for someone who's performing for no live audience, which I assume is very hard to do. And podcasting, you know, there, there's maybe maybe five, 10 people in a room at most. And so I'm kind of used to that vibe of being more chill. And so that's it's pretty cool to see artists still kind of get lost in that, th their own music and kind of the vibe they're creating, even though there's no live audience. It's definitely different doing that uh, on a live stream because nobody is there. Like a, a lot of times you, you're assisted so much at like a music festival or a sold out show by the energy of the crowd and it really helps elevate you. Whereas, yeah, live streams are a completely different experience. But yeah, I mean, I get really immersed into the music when I'm performing and I know that I also try and make a conscious effort to be enthusiastic about it and get into it because I know that comes across to a viewer. If they can feel my energy and enthusiasm 
on a camera or at a music venue, I think they're going to, they're going to respond to it in a positive way. So I always try and um, convey that, that energy and, and passion for my music that I have. So for a performance, like, let's say the one you did it, was it your house for digital Mirage? It looked like it was your, it was, uh, yeah, that was my creative director's, uh, backyard not my house there was a lot of speculation that it was my house i'm like yo i'm I'm not rolling in that kind of money (laughs) (laughs) well it it was a it was a dope setup uh regardless yeah no it was fun to do it there for sure for a performance like that how do you get yourself in that headspace where you want to be enthusiastic like you said you want to pump yourself up you want to get yourself going for the people that are watching on the other side of a screen what are what are some of the things that you've learned from live performances that can kind of get you in that zone for the remote ones now? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, well, first of all, like I, I, I just really focus on the music and, and the passion that I have for the music, like the edits that I've made and the productions and stuff. And I don't know, I guess, I guess it might just be through doing it enough at this point and being on stage enough where I feel like I I can just kind of get in that mindset, but maybe even drawing back to those, like, you know, thrice days and stuff. It's like, I, I, back then I understood the importance of giving everything your all when you're like on stage and performing, because that's, that's the best way to get the crowd to respond to you. And I just know that, you know, once the the red light is on or once I'm on stage for a live show, it's like, just, it's like game time. It's like, yeah. you gotta, you gotta be ready for game day to show up and, and have your, your best, best performance yeah. possible. Yeah. You mentioned the, like the spiritual uplifting aspect of music. Are you, do you believe in a a higher power when it comes to music? Like I've been thinking about this a lot since, you know, being in solo quarantine and having time to go crazy basically and let my thoughts run wild. I've been thinking about the spiritual aspect of music and whether there are forces at work with music that we don't yet understand, like it's not quantifiable, but it brings people Mm -hmm. together. Is there some sort of spiritual aspect to music that you subscribe to where it's like out of your control? Yeah. I mean, I think I am kind of a spiritual person and I think I do believe there's some thing beyond our understanding that connects us with music. I've always just felt like music is so unique that it can elicit an emotional response so meet so quickly in someone and even some like a life event or period of someone's life they listen to a song a lot and they hear the song like 10 years later they can recall yeah. that feeling and where they were at that time in their life it's just there's something about music that like is beyond i feel like our our total understanding of it and i just know that there is something there some sort of connection that we have with it that is probably beyond our total understanding right now, but that's why I love it. I mean, I love feeling that connection when I make music. I love feeling that connection when the fans are responding to the music. It's like, it's an electric feeling that you really can't, I can't emulate that in any other aspect of my life. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel, I feel similarly where there are moments recently where I've heard a song and I'm instantly transported back to a time 10 years before where I'm, I'm driving over a bridge or something. I don't know where, but I can just picture it vividly mm-hmm. or walking across campus. And I'm like, oh, I listen to this song always walking from the dining hall to the library because like I'm seeing that path when that song is playing. So I'm like, yep. there needs to be something more with music that we don't understand yet because it's not just normal memory. It's like inducing something it's like yeah it's inducing the memory and it almost can induce like the feeling of that time period of your life too Mm -hmm. it's crazy yeah no it's like i mean i'm sure everyone's done it but like you go through a breakup and you avoid songs that remind you of that person or you go through a negative any sort of negative experience and you avoid the sounds or songs that remind you of it and then same thing for positive you want to feel positive you put on songs that make you feel better. Exactly. That's also why I feel like even during quarantine, there's a lot of, I feel like I'm noticing a lot of people and myself are listening to like 
older catalogs of music, like back catalogs, mm-hmm. trying to like almost get back to a, a place before the pandemic and the place that feels like comforting and familiar. Yeah. I've seen that in some other artists too, where the album that Machine Gun Kelly just put out with Travis Barker with like all those early 2000s, mm-hmm. Blink-182 influences like Alien Ant Farm. Like I, I hear that music and you could even kind of see it because he's been putting out videos in quarantine and he's fucking around with Travis Barker and you're like, oh, it makes sense. He probably started listening to that music, having nothing else to do besides, you know, smoke weed, sit and listen and make music. And now he put out this album that's just like tapping into that nostalgia. Oh yeah. The nostalgia is very strong in that album. I, it like remind it really reminds me of that old era. And even like one of my best friends who still is involved with the music project, he's like, I listened to this machine gun Kelly album. And I'm like thinking back, I'm like thinking back to the music venue chain reaction and wearing like tight jeans and moshing and rocking out. And that it evokes all those, those same feelings of that, that, that old era. Yeah. Speaking of nostalgia, one of the pivotal remixes that you put out is what was Burn by Ellie Goulding. You did an unofficial remix of that. Mm-hmm. And you've spoken about the that, that kind of being a a transformative moment in the sense where you used guitars and got feedback that you hadn't gotten before. Could you talk about that moment and how that kind of changed the way that you made music going forward? Yeah, a lot of what I was doing before then was I was using piano in the music, but um, and it was more like house piano, like house music, piano house driven type music. And Burn was the first time that I ever actually plugged in my Fender Strat, the first guitar I ever had, directly in to my sound card and incorporated it into my music. And it was sort of like uh, an aha moment for me to really incorporate more organic instrumentation and real instruments into uh, the productions to give it that like human emotional feel. Because even with the piano stuff, I was still maybe playing it on a MIDI keyboard, but then I was like quantizing it and drawing it in. So mm-hmm. it was like perfectly precise and it kind of had an electronic feel to it and a digital feel. Whereas doing directly D, uh, directly in, directly lining in my guitars, you know, it's not yeah. totally like it's a bit detuned. Like there's a not, it's not perfect. And that imperfect nature of it, I think is what actually makes you feel connected. They get that human connection with music. And that was the first time I did that. And it was the first time any of my music really got any notice was when I started doing that. And I never really looked back from that moment on. What was it about the the release of the song that made it obvious that people wanted more like that? Was it the comments? Was it the streams? Like what what were you? It was kind of, yeah, it was kind of everything. I mean, I, I put out a couple songs before that and it got, you know, a couple blogs were like, yeah, this is cool. Like I'll post it. And it got, you know, several thousand streams i guess and then and then the burn remix came out and the comments were just like on a whole nother level a lot of people were just like what is this what is the sound he's using like i've never like this sounds so cool and then it it like blew up on soundcloud a bunch of youtube channels that emailed me asking if they could put it on their channel and they did well on there like i even got a message from Ellie Golding's label asking if oh, they can damn. turn that into an official remix and that Ellie really liked it. Actually, I got a video from their management team like a year ago. She's at like one of the big festivals in Britain and she still used the remix production stems that they that I sent them right when I first made that remix. Oh yeah. So it was like tapping all, into that nostalgia. Yeah, yeah. So all those like signs were just so obvious to me that there was something definitely different in engaging on a like fan level uh, with mm-hmm. that production style. It was like immediately obvious uh, when, yeah. when, it, when it came out. So when you see the reaction to a song like that, a remix that you did, um, 
an artist as as big as Ellie Goulding and you see the positive response, how do you think about taking what people or how do you think about taking how people are responding versus what excites you? Because that's something that I think about a lot with podcasting of like, I want to do what excites me, but I also want to cater to what other people are excited by too. But I don't want to sell out completely to have a conversation with someone be, just because I think it's going to go viral or something. Like I want it to be both uh, in a optimal world. How do you think about that with music when so much of your livelihood relies on other people being excited by what you do? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a definitely a difficult balance at times. I think for me, even throughout the whole project, I've always, I've never been afraid to sort of experiment and do stuff that may not be totally expected. Like I've always, I feel like I've always, every once in a while, thrown a bit of like a curveball at people. Yeah. Because as a, as a creative, it's exciting for me and it keeps me excited and stimulated and motivated to just make, make music and, and stay, stay creative. And I know that sometimes it doesn't, it's not going to pan out. In fact, more often than not, the, the curveball ones haven't amounted to like the most commercially successful piece of music and whatnot. But it's really rewarding for me as a creative to be able to do that. And I just think I, I'm always of the mindset of trying to not repeat and do the same thing that I've done before. You obviously don't want to hard pivot left turn or something like that and throw people off completely. But I do feel like it's important to keep pushing yourself creatively and let the fans grow with you as an artist or creative. Yeah, it's funny. I'm addicted to whiteboards. So I have a couple over here that are out of shot. But on one of the whiteboards is written 80%, 20%. And next to it, I have 80% core competency, like what people know you for. So conversational and podcasting, and then 20% experimental of like, I'm just going to throw some shit against the wall. TikTok actually made me think about it because I created an account on TikTok and Mm -hmm. was like getting some videos that would blow up, but wasn't really podcasting related. So I was like, okay, maybe, you know, one out of every 10 things I put out is just going to be not what I'm known for. So I, I think the way that you think about it is super useful long-term to kind of excite yourself and excite other people by just like being like, fuck it, I'm just going to do this. And if people don't like it, no one's going to talk about that in five years. They're just going to talk about the shit that they do like. Exactly. I feel like if, if you do the same thing of what's totally expected, it can retain your fan base and they can stay on, but they're also growing and changing as people and consumers too. So like, and the world is constantly changing. I just never believe like doing the same exact thing is going to create the same expected or a better result. You always want to be, and as a creative, you always want to try and be doing better. Like you want to improve upon the last version and, try new things. And I think that expansion of the mind is really helpful as a creative. Is there something in the experimental realm that has been on the back burner for a while, but you're not sure about whether you're, you're going to go all in on it for whatever reason, like something that's kind of piqued your interest, but is maybe outside of that 80% of what Griffin is known for? That's a good question. I think about other things that I could do in the music industry as a producer and even just not as a producer, I do think about that kind of stuff. Musically, I've experimented with some stuff where I'm like, man, maybe this is a little too, a little too crazy, but I've thought about, yeah, I've thought about releasing music under like a different alias or just exclusively producing for other artists and genres without my name attached. And I've been experimenting more with like, doing more orchestral stuff and which I'm actually dropping next week, some orchestral arrangements and potentially getting into more like TV film type stuff. So yeah, I'm definitely like always thinking about what else I can do 
as an artist. So I'm trying to push the envelope for myself. Yeah, let, let's get into that because I, I had it down here to to ask you about. So you have the deluxe album coming out December 10th, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have two remixes, four orchestral versions, which are dope, by the way. I was listening to them this afternoon. Oh, thanks. Noel, Noel sent me the, the deluxe album. And, and you worked with composer... Max, Max Arouge. Mm-hmm. Am I pronouncing it? Max Arouge. Yeah, Arouge. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that creative process, making the orchestral version as opposed to something that would be a more traditional release? Yeah. And how I, that kind of come together in COVID? Yeah. So a lot of what we did, we first got put together through uh, my creative director, Jordan, to do some live orchestral stuff for Coachella last year. That was kind of how we first got started. And we, we began doing like a, an orchestral edit of Tie Me Down. And we did an orchestral edit of Nobody Compares to You. And that was sort of the beginning of our partnership of working together. And it worked out really well. Like he's a, on a friendship level, I, I vibe with him. And on a creative musical level, we saw things similarly, but came from totally different backgrounds. He's very traditional orchestral type stuff. And I'm more like, contemporary pop music and whatnot, but it worked really well, like our different backgrounds. And so after the Coachella success and I was, as I was finishing up the gravity album, basically decided to try and maybe re-envision some of it and further build upon what we did at Coachella and do like full orchestral arrangements on some of these gravity records. And it was a really cool process going back and forth. Definitely one of the more challenging projects I've done in a while, but it was, I'm super happy with how they came together. We went through so many versions of different tracks, but the final product of these four records, I'm like, I'm really, really proud of on a personal level. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool to hear the different kind of buildups and the instruments all coming together, like horns, drums, like things that you don't typically hear from a a normal, I guess, for lack of a better word, Coachella set or Lollapalooza set or something like that. Right. And yeah, it's cool to hear that dynamic go together. And I imagine it's a different headspace from what you're normally in when you're producing a track that's a non-orchestral version. Right. Yeah. Especially when I'm doing the more pop-leaning tracks and even even the dance, the dancier ones, there's... There's definitely some like structural elements to like the, the composition. Like there's always a, you know, a verse, intro, a verse, a, a hook, and with a and then a build with like a drop, and you kind of have that like flow to those records. Whereas orchestral, it's kind of like blank canvas. Where do you want to take this? And that was it's it was really challenging to actually it was challenging, but also really cool to have that sort of complete freedom. And Max's knowledge of classical music and his runs and chord progression turns and changes were like so inspiring. Like sometimes Mm -hmm. he would do shit where I was just like, whoa, like how did you even like go there in your head? That's so crazy sounding. Like we have to do this. Like we have to put this in the track. And his, his background with my contemporary, like we pulled like... We just pulled each other uh, into each, each own's world in like a really healthy and cool way, where you can feel you can feel both of our influences on this on on these pieces of work for sure. So, w- what did it actually look like? Was it the whole orchestra there at once? Were you recording parts individually? How, what did that creative process look like, especially in COVID, where I, I assume there are more limitations than normal for recording? Right. Yeah. It became this whole year has been so challenging from a recording standpoint, especially with something like the orchestral stuff as well. We had to basically, well, a lot of it is surprisingly just software, but there were times where we had to record individual instrumentalists where we would either work with them on like Zoom and try and like direct them through it where they had like a direct connection and they would perform it. We could hear it back like on the internet and be like, Oh yeah, that was cool. But can we like change it a little bit like that? There's definitely things like that, but that made it a little bit weirder. Yeah. I imagine conducting someone through zoom feels, uh, 
it's like weird because it's weird with like the lag and everything too. It's weird with the lag, and you just kind of like it feels much less human. I don't know. You you just don't quite get that same emotional connection, uh, particularly with music. Like when you're in the writing rooms, like if someone comes up with something dope in the writing room, like lyrical hook or something like that, like you feel, you can see everybody's eyes like light up and you can feel the Mm -hmm. energy change in the room where everyone's like, Oh my God, like that's it. Like, let's go, let's go. Like you don't feel that like connection and energy as much over zoom and those kind of meetings. But, uh, we were able to still pull it off though. It was just really unconventional in a lot of ways, but, um, still, yeah, we still made it, made it work. So, with the the track with Audrey Mika that you just dropped, Safe mm-hmm. With Me, yeah. which is a jam. Thanks. What, yeah, what, um, did that kind of come together during quarantine too, where you were putting together everything over Zoom? Or like, what was that moment like when you first heard the vocal and thought, okay, I got to make this happen with this person? Yeah, so that one was a bit different because that it was written like pre quarantine, which is actually funny Mm -hmm. because it feels so relevant right now. Whereas it was made like late last year, early this year, but it was one of those songs that I always loved. And then it just grew on me. I felt like such a stronger connection to the record as we were going through COVID Mm -hmm. and quarantine. But the production of that, almost all of it was just done in my backyard in Venice just like messing around guitars and just tracking everything there. And then when I, when I brought Audrey in on the record, she originally, she like really loved it. And then sent me like a scratch vocal from like her bedroom. She like sent me her vocals and I listened to it and I was like, dude, like this is it. Like you were the perfect person for this record. You brought so much attitude and vibe to it. And then we ended up, finally being able to schedule a studio session in Hollywood. And it was funny because we like all rolled up and everyone was like so masked because we had never met each other before. And there was like this definite like hesitation and being like, Hey, like, uh, it's really nice to meet you. Like, but hopefully you've been like safe and quarantining and all this kind of stuff. But over the course of that session, we really started opening up and we, we both realized we're from the Bay area. Like both have, have Japanese parents. Like there's all these like, we just started getting like super comfortable with each other. And as that comfort started building, like she got more confident in the record mm-hmm. and confident in our relationship and just started like killing it in the studio. And it was really cool to see her progression over that session, even just grow in confidence. And yeah, she, she crushed yeah, it. Yeah. That, that's something that seems like it's a huge through line with people, anyone who writes music, especially with the people that, I've been lucky enough to speak with on the podcast is that making people comfortable in the studio and comfortable in the writing room elevates the actual performance. Like it's almost like you're a therapist first and kind of hearing about people talk about their life and then also sharing things about your life. And then you're like, Oh, okay. I know you well enough to show all my emotions now. And some exactly. Yep. No, that's exactly right. Because I think to be your best in music and creative, you have to be comfortable and like relaxed and not overthinking things. And there has to be like just no negativity or judgment in the room. Like you just have to be yourself because that is that's the best way to be able to convey emotion and get the best performance. And yeah, even with Audrey, it was just... Even or even like when I want to work with any vocalist, actually, it's like maybe they're like super off, like on a certain cut when they're performing in the room. Yeah. But you still got to be like, dude, that was so dope. Like, keep going. Yeah. Like, you were like, it's so good. Like, and that confidence is like everything for an artist mm-hmm. to feel that validation. And you're like, oh, all right, yeah, yeah, I am like doing a good job. And yeah. then like you can feel as the like, cut is going and their confidence is growing the performance just continues to get better and better. What if you're with a vocalist though, and it actually is not working for whatever reason. And you're like, damn, this is not good, but you don't want to sell them. It's not good. How do you give criticism 
in a way that doesn't make them feel like shit, but gets them to make the change? Oh, yeah, that's that can be tough. I mean, because artists, anybody really is is kind of it's easy to offend somebody, you know, like w- with something creative, like if the, if you're trying to get feedback, like even if it's constructive feedback, you just immediately like it's hard to receive that kind of feedback. You're just inherently going to be a bit sad or frustrated by it. But yeah, it's definitely about like positive reinforcement, but then try and present it in a new angle or just be like, can you, can you just like try this just just for once? Like I might be like so stupid for suggesting this, but do you mind trying it like in this way? So Mm -hmm. they're kind of like, okay, like I guess. And then if they do it in the right way, you're like, Oh my God, like, you don't even know how good you sound on this. Like come back in here, like in the studio, listen to what I'm hearing. And like, you know, like you kind of work with them through those changes to sort of get their mind set in a different spot. And it does always help if you've got, you know, someone in their camp in the room, in the booth or not in the booth, but in the studio also head nodding at you being like, yo, like I like, I like this too. Like, this is dope. Like once you get someone in their camp, like into it, it's a lot easier to sort of like change that mindset and mind frame. Yeah, no, it's it's cool to watch. I've I've been lucky enough to be in a few studios in New York where I'm just kind of a fly on the wall and I'm watching someone lay down a vocals or vocals or guitar part or something and like the recognition in the the room I don't I don't know what the technical term outside the glass, I guess. Like before mm-hmm. the artist hears it played back, but like yeah. everyone else knows it's dope. Like yeah. everyone in the room is like, oh sh like this is fucking sick and then the artist yep. comes out it's like yo is that good yep. we're just like yep <laughs> yeah there's always that yeah i know exactly what you're talking about some sometimes vocalists can identify like i really like that take but sometimes they don't and it takes like it does take them to leave the booth and hear it on the big speakers in the main studio room where they're like yo this is fire like they always they kind of mm-hmm. have that epiphany but that is such a cool feeling in the studio when everybody's like vibing like from whatever take or whatever music is being made, everyone's just like nodding the same time. Like everybody's like in like a rhythm together. It's, it's a really cool. I was wondering what advice do you have for younger artists or, or maybe something that you would tell your younger self about listening to the voice inside your head that tells you this is shitty or this is never gonna pan out or no one's going to listen to this. Like, how do you, how do you learn to overcome that creatively and even use it to your advantage? Because you can't really get to the level you're at with recognition and, and streaming wise and just being out there without having a relationship with that voice telling you like, basically you have to tell that voice like to fuck off essentially, uh, you know, I'm going to make what I want to make. Well, I think as an artist, like you have to be, you really have to be, happy and proud of the work that you're making like without trying to think too much about the commercial success like i do think a lot of what was good about the earlier days when i was doing the soundcloud stuff and in that burn era was that i wasn't there wasn't like a expected production style or sound for me back Mm -hmm. then it was just sort of like nobody knows who I am and I'm just going to put out music that I like and we'll see like the, and there was like sort of an innocence to that, that I actually felt was pretty invaluable. Like I think every artist needs to have that kind of innocent feel where you're just, you're not overthinking things and you're just Mm -hmm. kind of doing what feels right and what feels natural and flows out. But I do think getting feedback from people that you really trust, like in your circle or friends and family or whatever, like, I do think that is really important. And I always tell like an up and coming producer or artist that some of the most important things you could do are a take an idea and finish a song. Like how it's so important to go through the entire process of, a, of coming up with an idea of a song to actually finishing the song. And once you're done with the song, like don't be afraid to show it to people and put it out on the internet because you're never going to like, you're never going to know really if people, how something will be received if you don't put it out and put it into the Mm -hmm. world. And that feedback that you may get positive or negative will be very valuable to you in terms of helping guide you and direct you into, into your music. Yeah. So as a kid who went to 
high school or went through high school in the late 2000s, my friends would beat me up if I did not at least mention White Panda. So I wanted to get your kind of looking back on it now, because that was really a moment in time. I remember Camelback music, good music all day, like all those blogs for years straight were posting uh, White Panda or Blouse Dance Floor Filth. Like that was like a formative mashup moment for people where there were actually good mashups coming out and people wanted to listen to it. For you, what what is your number one takeaway from that time as uh, part of the duo of White Panda? Yeah, I don't I don't really talk about this kind of era, but um it was it was great. I mean, I wasn't as creatively nearly as creatively fulfilled as I am now, but I am I do appreciate that era for what it was because it enabled me to pursue music as a career when I didn't think I had any shot at it and opportunity to do that. And yeah, it, it like it laid the groundwork for me to and gave me the confidence to pursue music. And that was invaluable to me. And I definitely made a lot of great friends, had a lot of great friendships developed through that whole experience. And um, definitely happy with where I am now, but I cherish and appreciate those years for what they were for sure. I appreciate you uh, being willing to talk about it. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't look back on it in a negative way. I just, uh, I didn't want any of the success or anything that was from that world to influence Griffin. That was all, that was always my thing is I, I wanted Griffin to be completely unrelated and to prove that I could be successful by doing a whole new career in, in music without any sort of, I don't know, additional publicity or exposure. I just wanted the, the music to stand for itself. But I do appreciate that era for what it was for sure. So what, uh, what business advice would you have for younger artists? Is there anything business-wise, even for creatives in general, that have made a big impact on you? Maybe any books you've read or advice you've gotten back in the day about handling the the business side of creating? I mean, I think you definitely want to, I mean, make sure to read over contracts very thoroughly. Definitely seek out advice when you feel like you don't understand something. Don't just try and go about it by yourself or make sure you're doing the proper research because in the industry, like people will definitely take advantage of you if they can. So you need to be very aware of that. I guess that's what I would say in terms of on, on the business side and to also just like surround yourself surround yourself with people that you really trust and feel are looking out for what's best for you. I think it's really important to have a solid crew and people that that really want the best for you. So something I wanted to ask you as we we wrap up is I always try to think about the the three main through lines of a guest that I speak with. And when I was thinking about Griffin, the three things that stood out to me were number one, just the practice of engineering in general, whether it's engineering in the traditional sense or like engineering sound, like putting things together to the production aspect of creating creatively making music from scratch and three performance wise. So is that correct to say that those were our three main through lines? And if so, how do you see those three kind of coming together and what you do? Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely think those are good through, through lines. I mean, yeah, I think all of them are super fundamental to who I am and what the Griffin Project is about. I think like in terms of connecting all of those, I think it's what makes them all kind of work and help me in being successful is that it I work really hard at all three of those things. Like I've developed a good work ethic and I put in a lot of the hours. And then fundamentally, like these are all things I'm super passionate about. I really love to do all those things. And it doesn't even feel like a job to me, really. It's just something I genuinely love doing. 
Yeah. So the the last thing I wanted to ask you as you wrap up is if I look at everything you do from the outside, I could see the streaming, I could see the music videos, I could see the performance. For someone who can see everything from the outside and maybe they read all the books you read about music, like they have the knowledge, they learned the knowledge. What is something about music that you can never really fully understand unless you actually make it yourself and put yourself out there in a way that you may be able to articulate on this podcast? Like you can learn everything about it, you can read about it, you can stream it, but something that you never really fully grasp unless you make it yourself. Well, I think, I guess that for me, I've always, I'm not a very like public person necessarily. And I don't like share my feelings out publicly that much, but I am fundamentally a very like emotional person. And through the music, I think there is like a really good emotional release and, and a, like a vulnerability that I've learned or like I've, I've had by like releasing this music that I don't think I will have experienced in my life if I hadn't done music and hadn't gone through all this stuff that I think is really rewarding. And it's an interesting thing to go through as a creative is that emotional release in the creation and vulnerability of like putting it out there publicly. Yeah, well, I, I think that's a, a great place to wrap up. What What are the best places for people to follow you? I actually just followed you on TikTok, by the way. Oh, nice. They got yeah, on there. I'm, I'm getting my TikTok game going. Uh, hell it's yeah. It's basically <laughs> at Griffin Official pretty much everywhere. And Spotify is just Griffin. So yeah, you can find me at all those. So hit me up if anybody wants to, wants to chat. Yeah. For anyone uh, listening, go stream Safe With Me. Go hit up the Deluxe album and then work your way backwards through the entire Griffin catalog because it's fucking dope. And uh, thanks again for taking the time to top on the podcast. Your music has meant a lot to me. So it's an honor to get to speak with you. And I know that listeners will gain a lot of value from what you said. So thanks, thanks man. No, I appreciate, appreciate you having me. It's, it's great. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Augzoro podcast. To keep up with everything Augzoro, you can follow us at at Augzoro on Instagram and TikTok and at Augzoro TV on YouTube. Also, subscribe today to our twice monthly newsletter, The Source, which brings you the most inspiring and underrated books, podcasts, videos, and articles we come across, as well as the latest Augzoro content. Go to augzoro.com forward slash The Source to subscribe. Until next time.